Hi, and welcome to another episode of Found, a conversation at the intersection of Christian faith and culture, where we always aim to find Jesus in the way we react and respond to our world. Found is part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. My name is Linda Tokar, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Brandon Bathauer. So love, this great and amazing force of God in this world is designed to be outward focused. It is for the building up of others, And yet in our world, we have not only watered it down, we've inverted it. We've pointed the arrow back to ourselves. But the reality is that he's working toward a good in our lives, a goal in our lives. And sometimes the loving thing isn't the temporarily comforting thing. It's not the immediately relieving that pain, even though that's what we would say would demonstrate his love. Like, if you loved me, this is what you'd do. Yeah. And his view is so much bigger and so much broader and focused on things that sometimes we're not even aware of. I think if you summarize it best, it's kind of something like this. It's just that at its root, God loves us for no reason. Mm. It is his character. It yeah. just flows to us. And that is so beautiful and so refreshing that is what love is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it is so good hey brandon what's up linda not too much not too much excited to be here today oh man we got some wonderful things to talk about but yeah it's been a uh it's been a fun season you know this is back to school season right now for sure pretty fun Mm -hmm. and uh it's been really warm lately and i'm really excited Uh, for a little bit of a little bit cooler weather yeah I'm wearing like a hoodie with rolled up sleeves just in hopes just, that the and fall flip-flops. will come. Absol- always flip-flops. Right. Let's be honest. This yeah. is California. Absolutely. So good. It was, uh, we're talking about fruit of the spirit, right? This yes. is the start of our fruit yes. of the spirit. So exciting. Um, it was this wonderful moment. Uh, this was back to school night was, was last night. Mm-hmm. And uh, my son Lincoln was sharing about, he's in kindergarten. They have these fifth grade buddies. Sure. That like kind of meet with them and they had like these little questionnaires. And so, uh, one of the questions, the last question was, what was your favorite, what's your favorite food? And my son said, the fruit of the spirit. Yes. The fruit of the spirit is his favorite food. I love your son so much. I was like, dude, that is awesome. And I'm sure the fifth grade guy was like, uh, Uh, this is a public school. I don't know what I'm uh, supposed to do right now. But uh, anyway, it was, um, I was so proud. Oh, I just love that so much. What's your favorite food? The fruit of the spirit. It nourishes me. Oh. <laughs> I wish I had that wisdom when I was five. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Well, and he kind of laughed. And then I was like, that's a funny joke. He's like, it's not a joke. You're <laughs> like, like, dang, dude. <laughs> this guy is serious. I love that. <laughs> Well, with that, because that's what we're focusing on, fruit of the spirit. So Mm -hmm. let's jump in. So in this episode, we are talking about love. Now, right away, this conjures images or memories or feeling. Everyone everywhere pretty much values and celebrates love. Love is typically regarded as good. It's seen as a virtue. It's seen as something we want to receive and we want to give. In our music and our books and our TV shows and movies, all of our entertainments, we celebrate love and the pursuit of love or we mourn love lost, or we explore the complications of love and sometimes the dangers of love. I mean, love is sacred to us as a people. In the United States, we have a whole day dedicated to love, right? So we all love, but as we dig a little bit deeper, we begin to discover that we don't all define love the same way. 
Given the power and pervasiveness of love, the way it's defined has far-reaching ramifications. It affects how we think about ourselves. It affects how we treat others. It dramatically impacts the direction of our art and our music and our entertainment. So if love is this thing that drives us as a society, then the definition has to be clear. And wherever we disagree on this definition it's going to drive us in very different directions. So this is a really important conversation and we're really entering the battle of whose definition of love we're talking about. So I think it's going to be a great time. So Brandon, let's jump into the exercise. Yeah. All right. So again, we're going to be stepping into a three-part series on the fruit of the spirit um, and then we'll come back to other ones later. But what we're hoping to do in this is to recover what has been socially taken and formed and one could say deformed yeah. that if we want to become more like Jesus as Jesus followers, wherever you are along that journey, and maybe you don't yet. And hopefully by the end of the episode, you're like, yeah, I want more of that. I want to be more like that. But if, if Jesus is a goal is the goal we want to chase after then getting clear on his actual Mm -hmm. characteristics is really important. So when we talk about Jesus as loving or joyful or as somebody who brings peace, I think what's happened a lot is that in our culture and our society, those words have been bent and Mm -hmm. sometimes broken to mean something very different than is actually meant by this characteristic of Jesus. And so what, again, we're hoping to do in, in this podcast is to become conscious a little bit about all the things we are unconscious to. Right. (laughs) All the ways we started using (laughs) language and having our perspectives shaped to say, wait wait, wait a second. Mm -hmm. I guess I do believe this. I've been maybe over-influenced by this view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I don't actually agree with that. Right. (laughs) But I've bought into it because I've just been shaped by it. So that's what we're going to do with the concept of love. Scripture says God is love. So whatever our view of love will deeply impact our view of God. Mm -hmm. Honestly, the stakes could not be higher. So we're going to look at two different perspectives of love that are predominant in our world today. One of them is more focused on me. One of them is more focused on kind of the community. And then we're going to hold this in contrast with what Scripture actually lays out as God's love and I hope we will kind of be shaped by that and be convicted by it and be excited by it. Yeah, so, challenged. <laughs> absolutely. So uh, let's dive into the very first viewpoint that we're going to dig into, which is love is about my pleasure. my pleasure the first thing you may think of is chick-fil-a my pleasure all right that's, that's such a nice way <laughs> people to <laughs> that wasn't the first thing you thought about no but that's all right <clears throat> maybe that's i'm just right. hungry um maybe now this concept of love love as my pleasure here's the thing once we're done with this section you're gonna be like yeah wow that is absolutely something that is so prevalent in our society today it's prevalent in me it's prevalent in my thinking you're going to realize that um, it's it's kind of crazy. And hey, quick note again, these are long episodes with a lot of content. A lot of research has been put into this. We've got a group of people that pour their thoughts and research into this. And so 
hey, if it's helpful to listen to it all in one sitting, by all means, that's great. Go for it. <laughs> uh, but it's actually built into kind of three different sections sure. and the three different viewpoints. So if it's helpful to listen to the first third, hit pause, think about it for a while, come back to it a different day or a different time, by all means, that we've kind of built it for you to be able to do that. Um, so whatever works great for you, go for it. Now, I would venture to say 90% of the time we think about love, the way we talk about love, 90% of the times we use the word love is really about this viewpoint. Mm -hmm. So what is it? At its core, love in this viewpoint is my personal experience of pleasure. Mm -hmm. It's an internal subjective experience that is positive and, well, I should say positive for now. You know, the song, uh, what is love, baby, don't hurt me. So, you know, it's positive for now, but who yeah. knows the pain is going to come in the future. Now, neurobiologically, there is a reality about what's happening here. When we say, I love this, I love this person, what we're talking about in this viewpoint is the pleasure that this person brings me. Sure. So neurobiologically, this love is the release of dopamine that produces oxytocin uh, that comes as a result of being attracted to someone or something. Mm -hmm. That is, from a chemical and biological standpoint, why the feeling of butterflies is kind of similar when you see that high school crush, if you remember that feeling, or when you see, like, a chocolate fountain over at the corner, you know, and you're like, <laughs> oh, that at, at that banquet hall, you know, and some strawberries. Like, you get those butterflies. It's the same biochemical thing that our sure. brain is actually doing is offering to us. And what's crazy is this is the same neurobiological thing that happens when we get uh, a notification, social media yeah. on our phone, someone liked your picture, someone liked your statement, uh, that same thing shows up. So this feeling of butterflies, this is what we're defining mm -hmm. as love. Now, if you think about it for a moment, this definition of love, this perspective of love is everywhere. It's in our romantic comedies, it's in romance novels, it's in celebrity gossip, and it is spread pretty much everywhere. Sure. Uh, the ideal of this perspective is like this. You find a person that gives you butterflies that you desire. You struggle a little bit. There's a journey as you fight to get to this person. This sounds like every romantic comedy, right? right. And you're finally, after some work, able to be with that person. They ask you to prom, you maybe get the final rose at the rose ceremony, <laughs> you, you know, and then they utter our culture's sacred words, right? I love you. That's when the relationship suddenly moves from we're just kind of whatever to like, whoa, you said the words. Yeah, yeah. And I love you. And it's so funny with those shows because it's like when they do the little one-off interviews about, you know, why do you like this person? It's, well, they make me feel this way. Or, you know, it's all about, I mean, realistically the show, I mean, by the time they're doing those interviews, they've spent a total of maybe three or four actual hours together. <laughs> oh, I get sort of this rush, you know, and it's yes. like, and yeah. that might be love, you know, and it's like, you know. <laughs> yeah, love. And again, yeah, is that rush, that feeling, that that momentary pleasure, those butterflies. And you see that, again, in these type of shows. That is what is uplifted. Um, and again, in this, what that person ought to do, if you love them, is they bring you happiness, fulfillment, never-ending pleasure, 
Again, in this picture, every day you wake up and you go to sleep with a smile as this person satisfies your every need, relationally, physically, <laughs> mentally, spiritually, emotionally, vocationally. And so, right, this is this is the picture. And uh, I would say there's actually this growing kind of movement at the edges of society where um, that picture of a monogamous relationship, romantic relationship, is actually starting to fade. And so there's this talk of polyamorous relationships where where my existence is just filled with the gratifying of sexual and relational sure. desires with whoever may be willing to offer such uh, gratification to me. And real quick before you think, man, our society is just so terrible. Two words, King Solomon. <laughs> right? Okay, so like this is, again, it, this it has been pervasive. Everywhere. And now you may be thinking, wait a second. No, love is way deeper than that. I believe love is way deeper than just satisfying my desires. Well, think about the language we use. Think about the language you use. Here's a little challenge, right? We use this thing I call like the pleasure or the desire scale, the love to hate scale. I hate this means I can't stand it. I'm disgusted by it. I have opposite desirous feelings towards this. Like, get that away from me. <laughs> right. right. Repulsion. Yes. Good word. Uh, and then we go to, I don't like something. Mm -hmm. Then I like something. Then I love something. Right. So I like those cookies. Well, I love those cookies. What we're <laughs> saying is you desire those cookies, but I desire them more. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm oh man, I know that you hate them, but I love Marvel movies, right? Mm. Like, okay, I know you are repulsed by them, yeah. but for me, I desire those movies. I have very fond feelings towards sure. those feelings. They satisfy my desires. Um, I love Beyonce's music. I love in and out What we are saying in all of this is that to love something means it brings you pleasure. Yep. Whether it's a thing, a person, or anything else. And so- like you think about it, what are we saying when we say that? Our love, love, this sacred, sacred thing that we throw around in our culture is the most important thing when you realize, wow, that is just about my pleasure. Because mm -hmm. then you start thinking, well, yeah, like I love cookies, totally makes sense. But then you move to I love you or I love myself or I love God suddenly things get far more complicated, right? Yeah, yeah. So for the sake of understanding this point a little bit, let's hold it all in contrast, okay? In, in scripture, there are different loves, word love in Greek, um, that shows up in different ways. So love is such a complicated thing, but in English, we just pack it all together in one word and we're right. like, love, there you go. <laughs> um, but the Greeks were smarter and the Hebrews were smarter and they realized we're going to use it in we're going to use different words to right. describe these different things that are going on. Um, and there are other loves in the New Testament, but largely there are kind of three that are laid out. There's agape, there's phileo, and there's eros. Now, uh, without getting too deep into all of this or too deep into Jesus' point of view, when I say I love, I think what Jesus would be saying is I seek the good of the other person. Mm -hmm. And this is tied to this picture of agape love, right? So when I say I love grandma, what I'm trying to say is that I am seeking the good of my grandma. Yeah. I've got a commitment to her. I want her good, and I'm going to do work to seek her good. Sure. It is a statement of commitment, of fondness, yes, but 
largely of this hoping for her ultimate good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we're going to say I love cookies in this <laughs> viewpoint, what we're really trying to say is I'm going to seek the ultimate good of these cookies. I'm going to, what, like put them in a hermetically sealed <laughs> little case and make sure that they are at this right temperature so they can go on existing. So could you ever eat a cookie that you truly loved? This in is, this view, ooh, that's so hard. I feel I, like there's a poem about that at some point. I don't know. I just by well, this definition, you couldn't. Would it be best for the cookie to be consumed? Right. Well, and that's the question: <laughs> Is the cookie the ultimate good of the cookie to be eaten? I mean, we can get into that. But uh, here's the thing: what what we're talking about here, again, how we've skewed this word, how this word has has shown to be very different than seeking the good of, which we'll get to a little bit more. This viewpoint is lifting up this Eros viewpoint of love. Mm -hmm. Eros is its northern star here. And to describe what Eros is, Eros is the arrow pointed towards me, Mm -hmm. right? So it's just all of the energy, everything else, every person out here is pointed towards my satisfaction of desire. Mm -hmm. Uh, Love is inherently existential, which is kind of like... I'm the only person in this world. I only know what's going on with me. It is subjective. Mm -hmm. It is personal pleasure-seeking feeling or act. It's all about me. Now, there's there's a lot of reasons why we're here now. Sure. Why we've uplifted this concept of eros, this like, I'm going to use whoever and whatever to seek my own satisfaction of desires. There's a lot of different people that this would come from but if we're diving into the philosophy beneath it i think it's helpful to look at the romantic philosopher uh, named john jacques rousseau Mm -hmm. which you may have maybe read in high school or something and uh but it's a viewpoint he carried that was then extended upon by by sigmund freud Mm -hmm. what rousseau would say is that we are born pretty much good and society corrupts us Mm. it's slowly corrupts us and it pulls us out of who we were actually intended to be so Mm -hmm. a lot of the heroes in Rousseau's thought were people that were the least shaped by these cultural pressures and norms that lost the authentic humanity that was beneath it and uh, you can see what happens here is that all of these cultural norms that say no no sacrifice for the good of the other uplift the other serve others as this concept of seeking the good of the other, those all things, all those things were actually corrupting influences right. um, built to repress, you know, push down these feelings of desires that are authentic human desires or oppress, right? This mm-hmm. repression would be something from within, oppression would be something so from outside, mm-hmm. pressing us to push down these real and authentic desires. And so, if that is the case, if society and these societal norms are bad, these things given to us by Christendom, by the church pushing its power on people, telling people that they should love others in a sacrificial way, that's all bad. Well, then the true solution to finding my authentic self is to throw off those things and seek my own right. desires. Right. That's what I need to do. Get rid of those societal burdens and restrictions. Follow your heart. Right, that's where this concept mm-hmm. really starts coming. And go with your desire, chase the more uncultured appetites, and let your real self emerge. And Freud would have been saying some similar things sure. in this. Now he would say, 
well, we need a society that would somehow hold together, and so there's some good in those pieces, but really your goal is to be integrated within yourself, Mm -hmm. and that often comes in exploring and often satisfying these these desires. And this, I, I must say here, this is why love has taken on so much of a sexual tone. Everything sure. you think about love in our culture is often so overly sexualized, I mm-hmm. think, as a result of, of philosophers and thinkers like Freud. Now, let's be honest. Uh, this makes sense in a world where I can't be certain of much outside of my own psychology. Sure. If what I know is just my own experiences, where some broader or more corporate reality cannot be accessed, I, I have to go within. Mm-hmm. And to know myself is just, look, all I know is my own desires. And so fulfillment will be found in naming and exercising and satisfying these desires. This is how my, I find myself. And so that's love. Right. Love, I've now experienced the satisfaction of my desires in this person. I now can come to fruition. This person will help me become more integrated and real and authentic to my real self. Um, And without going too far into this, this is why identity is so closely tied to who or what I love. To say it more clearly, who or what I desire, like that becomes one of the core identifiers in today's culture is who or what you love. Um, Because that is, in the essence, who I am. Mm-hmm. Now, to play this out, when I say I love you, what I am saying is I get pleasure from you. Now, that doesn't sound too romantic. No, it, I can just imagine as, I mean, even as you and I talked about this through, it's like you almost want to say, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But the deeper you look at it, it's like, no, that's actually what I'm saying. Right. And the, uh, right, it's and like I, holding up a mirror, and you're like, "Ooh, that's I don't like that." <laughs> yeah, this isn't a, this isn't a really nice conversation in that way because it is a bit of a challenge of like, "Ooh, I really like to talk about love so much," but when I really dig into it, yeah, ah, that like, is not a good love. No, it's not sustainable. We'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. Um, let's look at some positives of this okay. view before we get down that road. So first off positives of this view feelings are really good beautiful things and there are certain gut in certain gut instincts that do set the butterflies loose when you mm-hmm. meet another person and there's chemistry god built that yeah into us. i mean that was his design these are really great things the the satisfaction of desires in the right context and for the right good is a wonderful Wonderful thing. This is why so much of the stuff that humanity has created, so much poetry and music and movies, they are about this. They catch yeah. this aspect and this feeling. It's a, it is a wonderful way of being alive mm-hmm. and reminder of being alive. When you get some of these feelings, it's really great. Um, and then, and I kind of mentioned this before, like left with the premises of the postmodern subjective existentialist philosophy, you know, of just like, I can't know anything outside of myself. There may be something outside of myself, but I can't know it. All I can know are my own desires. It makes sense that you go, well, if that's all you can really know, I get why you'd land here. Yeah. And so uh, if there's not some grander ideal to simply be integrated with one's own self, then yeah, I mean, 
satisfy your desires. Those things are the very, very clear things. Mm -hmm. And that is the great good of humanity. Um, that's what I got. That's the best I got. Because, uh, yeah, anyway. Let's move on to some challenges, though. <laughs> Here we go. So I think we would all, if we're being honest, if we look at this description of love, that it clearly leaves out a great deal right. in what we would hope love would be. Things like commitment mm -hmm. disappear. In fact, the other person disappears. Yeah. They only become an object of your satisfied right. desires, your fulfillment, your, um, your achieving some levels of transcendence. In this view of love, you only matter to satisfy a pleasure need in me. Mm. You might as well be a cookie. We're you back know? to the cookie. Yeah, I am hungry. Okay. <laughs> now, let's look at the realities of this. In sure. Orange County alone, 70% mm -hmm. of marriages end in divorce. That statistic, every time I hear it, it just breaks my heart. Because, I mean, the, no wonder the younger generation looking at marriage, looking ahead, going, they're like, it's not working. <laughs> you know, why go through all the trouble? Yep. Yeah, and you think about all the pain. So much psychological research that oh, talks gosh. about the impact of... Divorce. Of divorce on kids, on the people who are divorced. Um, think about this. Why would that be the case? Well, if saying I love you simply means you bring me pleasure then my commitment is as long and as strong as the positive feelings I get from you. So pretty quickly, it's like, well, you stop bringing me pleasure. Mm -hmm. So we're done. And by the way, that's going to happen. The laws of diminishing returns, <laughs> right? The reality of the loss of novelty as items, as well as sure, relationships sure, sure. grow old. It shouldn't surprise us that we have a 70% divorce rate in Orange County. Again, because, you know, you buy that couch, there's... There is a neurological uh, research on this that you walk into a room, you buy a new couch. That couch has very positive impact on mm -hmm. you for a short period of time. Sure. And very quickly, that thing means nothing, brings zero benefit to you because mm -hmm. it loses its novelty. Right. You get used to seeing it. It's not new anymore. Somebody spills grape juice on it. And now it's like, oh, it's broken. Right. And so you think about that playing out in a relationship. Sure. Same thing happens. Mm -hmm. And again, if I love the couch and I love this person and we're using that same language and we're using it in the same way, well, then my relationship to the couch is the same as my relationship to this person. Mm -hmm. You're good to me as long as you bring me good butterfly positive feelings. I think... One of the things you just said reminded me of something that when you and I were brainstorming this and we were talking about how we use the same word to describe all these different things and how the words that we use, even though we don't, you know, we think we know the difference between loving grandma and loving God and loving chocolate. As we use the same word to describe them, the words we use shape actually the way we think. So we can, we can think that we're using it differently, but the very casual relationship that we have with an item can begin to influence the relationship we have with something much more important, like somebody that we say that we love, and it can become just as casual. I just, when we were talking about that, that was so powerful to me that sometimes we think that we're using words but mean different things in our head, but eventually the way that we're using them actually shapes our behavior in ways yeah. that we don't even expect. Yeah, like, neurologically, what wires together fires together. 
Uh, oh, that's good. Or yeah. uh, the other way, that what fires together wires together. That if I am continually using this word love as tied to a pleasure response, mm-hmm. and I'm using the same word for couch and cookie and person, mm-hmm. um, well, guess what's going to happen? Yeah. Over time, those words are going to shape my perspective towards that person or that couch. Yep. And it's usually going to be towards the person. So societally, like, why is it important for us to wrestle with this and why this view of love is something that we need to tackle to the ground and be honest about? Is that a community, a, a polis, a, a, a city, stands upon the commitment people make to one another. This is... The, the pro-social behavior that we carry is what a society is built upon. Yeah, it's like when we say the words, the fabric of society, that's mm-hmm. actually what this is. Right. But if there's no commitment, then that fabric becomes like tissue. I mean, it's just, yeah, there's nothing there. It tears there. apart so quickly. But I'm so grateful that we don't see our society being torn apart right. at all right now. <laughs> that was sarcasm. <laughs> right, like the faithfulness to the common good is going to be built on the back of the faithfulness to one another. Yeah. And if we don't get that, man, like even at the most basic form, it's really hard to build a society. Now, uh, C.S. Lewis says eros, which is, again, a, a, a love that is not bad. We, we have in Song of Solomon yeah. uh, the, the value of eros, these great things about the butterfly feelings that you have when someone is in this relationship with you. But it's not the problem, as Lewis says, is eros honored without reservation mm-hmm. and obeyed unconditionally becomes a demon. It's so powerful. Yeah, it's in a book called The Four Loves, which is fantastic. So here's the thing. Here's my challenge. Walk with me here through this. We are wired in ways to celebrate things that are generally good for humanity's continual existence. Mm -hmm. This is how God made us, right? I hunger, I eat. Now, I'm not eating simply because I want to get enough fuel to give me energy for the day. I'm eating. That's not what I'm thinking about. (laughs) Exactly. I want to satisfy that desire, and I get a little reward from that. That's great. Mm -hmm. I thirst, I drink. Not because I'm constantly thinking, I need to stay hydrated. <laughs> I, I drink because I'm thirsty. And in that moment, I think, man, I want the little reward that I get from it. This is fine. This is how God has made us. But there's that larger value beneath the reward. I need to stay hydrated. I need to have that energy to keep my body working. It keeps me alive. And this is true of love. The reward of desire satisfied doesn't exist for an in, as an end in and of itself. It is designed for the continuation of commitment mm-hmm. among individuals within a society. We get these little rewards because that is how societies grow. That's how God built us to be. Right. Are these social, community-bonded, trusting people? This is how humanity continues. And when that falls apart, we fall apart as a society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The challenge about this viewpoint is that we've kind of hacked the system then. Right. What we chase after is the reward as our end goal. Right. It's the instant gratification culture. It's Boom. Give, just yeah, give, I just need that reward. I don't want to work for it. I just want it now. Yeah. And then I don't care about what the end goal actually is beneath it. So if, think about like in marriage itself, what is our culture done? We spend more time, most people, 
when I say we, I think most people, spend more time planning the wedding event mm-hmm. than being prepared for marriage. Right? Often, what's the first question when somebody gets married? What's Sh- Show me the ring. Yeah, show me the ring. <laughs> right? We've we've uplifted the symbol. We don't it's like I don't I don't care about the person you're marrying. Just show me yeah. the ring, right? We've <laughs> uplifted the symbol as the goal and downplayed the whole point of the thing. This is why you know, in so many ways there's sexual intimacy and it's being uncoupled, uncoupled from loving commitment. Right. This is about my emotional benefit from you being detached from my desire for your ultimate good. So I don't care about your ultimate good. Just give me emotional benefit and I'll take that and go. And right, this is like a drug. It is artificially lighting up mm-hmm. our neurochemical makeup, but there are some major negative consequences. There's massive woundedness and isolation that comes mm-hmm. when love is just using people for my own pleasure satisfaction. Yeah, for sure. The Me Too movement, mm-hmm. I think, showed this in such an amazing way. It ultimately showed the perversion of mm-hmm. power and sexual and relational dynamics that result when others are only seen as a potential pleasure source, mm-hmm. right? The culturally pressured quest to define my sexual orientation as the most central question of identity, I think, comes as a result of the enthronement of this idea of love, right? Uh, Harvard did a study called Loneliness in America in February 2021. 61% of young adults, 18 through 25, which I would say is probably the group that is most um, impacted by this view of mm-hmm. love because yeah. it's in the dating and marriage and all that right. kind of season. 61% of young adults reported, quote, serious loneliness mm. or feeling lonely, quote, frequently or almost all of the time or all of the time. So this is six out of every 10 Young adults in America were saying, I feel serious loneliness almost all of the time or all of the time. Which is incredible because we are more connected theoretically with our social media. I mean, we're connected to people all the time in theory. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, we've exchanged real relationships for the social media thing and it's not meeting that need because... Six out of 10 people are lonely most of the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, what is, why? Because what am I doing when I post that picture of me and we are friends on social media? I want you to like it. Yeah. I'm extracting from you pleasure, mm-hmm. these dopamine hits. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm extracting from you pleasure from your interaction with me. You are a number on my followers list. Mm-hmm. Um if we are bought into this view of love that you are simply the solution to my, my desires. Well, I mean, why would I ask you how you're doing except for maybe to try to like deepen a relationship so I can get the emotional, physical, Mm -hmm. relational benefit. It doesn't serve you you. at all to step into my pain. Exactly. That's exactly right. Now it's interesting. The key recommendation from Harvard as a result of all of this, uh, They said, quote, we need to return to an idea that was central to our founding and is at the very heart of many great religious traditions. We have commitments to ourselves, but we also have vital commitments to each other, including those who are vulnerable. That sounds specific. 
suspiciously familiar. <laughs> You're right. So what what is the, the Harvard study saying? Oh, man, well, it seems like we need to stop being so focused on ourselves mm-hmm. and actually imagine a commitment to the other. Notice love in this view makes no space for commitment, especially not for those who are vulnerable, who are right. lost, who do not bring me pleasure or fame or comfort. In fact, the vulnerable often bring me displeasure or irrelevance or discomfort. Mm-hmm. And this is why in Jesus' radical upside-down kingdom, this is who he modeled love towards and who he calls us to love. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's probably a good spot to dive into what scripture has to say. All right. There are examples of Eros love. Yes. Again, Song of Songs, for example, if you are under 18, don't read it. No. Just kidding. Didn't hear it here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But seeing desires fulfilled uh, can be had when it's done in a way that's good for the other. Um, it's in this larger sense of the word love. But, yeah, it's great to have Eros involved in that. It's wonderful for you to say, man, I experience pleasure in being able to love you. Again, not ju- only sexually. We're not just talking about that. But, again, right. we are, this word has become so over-sexualized. Um, because of what our society has done with it. But in any way, whether it's grandma or your cousin or uh, that person you just met, uh, what we want to do is to say, well, it's so wonderful that when I sit down with grandma, I feel these nice feelings of warmth and acceptance and uh, commitment. Well, that's great to experience those feelings and to name those feelings as long as your whole goal of ever being with grandma is not to just feel that. Right. Right. You got to be sitting down and thinking, what does grandma need? How can I help serve her? Right. Uh, now, again, the view is love is my pleasure. Let's see what scripture has to say to challenge that. Well, 1 Corinthians thirteen four says, love does not envy. Mm. Isn't that exactly what this love is? Mm-hmm. I want what I don't have and do will do whatever it takes to get it. Yep. I mean, envy is at the root so much of this yeah, concept sure. of love. First Corinthians thirteen five, it does not insist on its own way. I mean, Uh-oh. I couldn't imagine a greater challenge. And then check this out: Romans thirteen eight through ten. It's so good. The commandments. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. The commandments: You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet envy, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Mm -hmm. I think Paul chose those examples specifically. Don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet or envy. He uses those and says, you know what? If I were to summarize all of those, it'd be love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Now, again, in this view of love, if love is just my own pleasure... Well, think about it. Like, you shall not commit adultery. Well, this love says, well, I, I just love them. Like, we, I just, yeah. I get that, I get that deep emotional connection with them. So, man, I mean, don't I want to follow through on these desires? I just love them. I can't help it. Right? As, all the murder mysteries, you shall not murder, they're all about love triangles gone wrong, yeah. right? Instead, what Paul is saying is that love means not committing adultery, not murdering, not stealing, not coveting or envying uh 
That's what the Bible says love is. So that's something entirely, entirely different. Mm-hmm. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. That was the picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Let's bring some conclusion to this, this section. So love, this great and amazing force of God in this world is designed to be outward focused. Mm-hmm. It is designed to be this agape love, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, this outward-oriented love. It is for the building up of others. And yet in our world, in this viewpoint, we have not only watered it down, we've inverted it. We've pointed the arrow back to ourself. The, The work of evil has done a genius work in making love, the most other-oriented force in the world, become the most selfish. Mm. To God, to love means you keep the focus on the other, mm-hmm. to seek your good. But what we've done is we've made it where I use you to keep the focus on me. Mm-hmm. And that is this great, brutal picture that when we talk about love, uh, man, we, we should really hold it up and say, is this really the love that we want our society, that I want to be defined by. So, a few notes. Okay. You may be extra influenced by this view if you're feeling the experiences of loneliness. Mm-hmm. You're not loving as you wish to be loved. Right? So, if you are just like extracting love from them, I love you means you give me pleasure, but you want them to be committed to you and sacrifice for you. Well, you're not loving as you would want, want to be to loved. Be loved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Second is you're excusing behaviors that are contrary to God's direction and design for your life with the reason, I love them, I can't help it. And there are so many examples there yeah. Yeah. where we use love as an excuse to mm-hmm. step into disobedience mm-hmm. uh, of God's calling on our lives and in, to our own destruction. Absolutely. Um, And then finally, and this is maybe less extreme, but I think it's really important, and this is a challenge to you. If you use the word love to explain your liking of something, Mm -hmm. I know this is in so much of our vernacular now, but may I suggest it is often in the language we use that our ideas are corrupted. Use the word like or really like to talk about the things you desire. Use the word love to express your commitment to bettering someone or something. Mm. And we try to do this in our house, and it's sometimes a challenge. But I'll correct myself sometimes. Like, mm-hmm. man, I love that show. I mean, I really like that show. I like try to correct myself just because I want love to be a sacred, set-apart thing. Mm, that's so good. That I use for the people that I'm committing to bettering. Yeah, it's like, it's let's expand our vocabulary, you know. <laughs> if you love hiking, you really enjoy being out in nature. That's different, you know. Yep. Let's pull out the thesaurus and get creative so that love is reserved for what it really is, Mm -hmm. which is this deep commitment between people. It's a very different thing. Yep. So that's right. Awesome. Well, let's move on to uh, the second, uh, the second perspective that love is about agreeableness. Linda, take us there. Thanks, Brandon. So 
If we've looked at this first view of love that is so inward focused and, and is all about my pleasure, now we're going to take this one and this view of love has as its goal kind of, can't we all just get along? You know, so now it feels a little bit more, um, it definitely feels like you're look, you're thinking about other people more and it's, it's not so much about me. And especially as we were talking through this one and sort of that yucky feeling of like, oh, that's, I don't want to love that way. This one, you feel like, no, this is, this is much more loving. <laughs> so the best picture of this that I could think about as, as we were preparing this episode, I was thinking about the Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving, you know, where mom has worked all day and now we're all kind of sitting down to the table and she just wants everybody to get along. Don't talk about politics and religion. That's what it was in the seventies when I was growing up. It was just, don't say those things. Just keep it all nice. Keep it happy. Everybody smiles on their face. Let's enjoy this meal. It's a little bit contrived, but I don't really care because I've worked really hard and I want everybody to just get along. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, is can we, we can embrace that picture, but see in this view of love, great value is placed on unity and acceptance. We're just, we're just going to get along. We're not going to touch anything that might breed controversy or divisiveness at all. It minimizes conflict and confrontation, and it prefers to create a safe space where everyone is embraced without question. There are no others, whoever you are and however you come, you will be welcome. No questions asked. Now, on the surface, a place that just lets everybody come and be, that actually sounds appealing. Like, I want to be in a place where I'm accepted but, and loved and just come as you are. But there are some, there's some nuance to this that we're going to look at. So in 2022, this kind of love is often encapsulated in the phrase, well, you do you. You know, it, it's just this way of saying like, However you are, whatever you are, it's fine with me. I'm not going to challenge it. I'm not going to ask you to do anything different. I just, just, you do you. But underneath that phrase lie some assumptions. Number one, that love means accepting you exactly how you are without ever asking you to change. It means that the value of community and cohesion in that community trumps any moral or religious or ethical values. The most important thing is we all just get along. Love means quieting any concerns or questions that would rock the boat. It means safety and connection for the group, be it the family around that table or whatever group we're talking about, comes or should come by way of the path of least resistance, which is the word that we've put on it is tolerance, which is another word that's been hijacked and misused. (laughs) But it's just this, everything's okay, just come as you are, we're not going to rock the boat. Now, caricatures of this kind of love are like the kumbaya sitting around the campfire. Everybody's just singing and swaying. You know, everybody feels good and happy. A good word that we might use is just harmony. Everything's in harmony. Yeah, I think about like um, the stories of Woodstock 69. Right. Like, and I doubt it was as beautiful and perfect. And there are a lot of stories that talk about. Well, yeah, it's in the, the rearview mirror. So, yeah. yeah. But it's often presented in our society as this wonderful moment of acceptance of agreeableness of I think of the word like forcelessness. There was no use of force anywhere, no hierarchy. It's just, we're all, we're all agreeing. And it's this beautiful picture of harmony. And this love as the idea of seeking harmony is an ancient way of thinking. It goes all the way back. Um, You can take, for example, Buddhist idea of metta, right? This is, it's defined as the practice of loving kindness 
And it's a universal, heartfelt feeling of caring and connectedness. This love is a dedication to the welfare of and a wishing for the best for others near and far. You're not actually working for the betterment of, but you're wishing for it. You want it. You That is your desire. And um, I was fascinated by this, and I found a little segment from... It's called the Vadupama Sutta. It's some of Buddha's teachings and that they're captured in this writing. But it talks about, just listen to how this sounds. It says, one abides having suffused with a mind of benevolence, one direction of the world. Likewise, the second, the third, and the fourth. And so above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all is to himself, one abides suffusing the entire universe with benevolence, with a mind grown great, lofty, boundless, and free from enmity and ill will. In our current culture that is so divided and so combative and everything feels like you're constantly, you have to pick a side because if you don't pick a side, you don't exist. You know, everybody's in one side or the other. This sounds really appealing. Can't we all just get along? Can't we just have harmony? Yeah. I mean, it's- And it's it's crazy. You think about, um, I mean, we'll get to the challenges in a moment, but I would probably state that I think one of the reasons we are as divided as we are and tribal as we are is because we've been seeking after this goal mm-hmm. in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. we'll get there. Uh, you know, it is it is Eastern, but it's also, it is Western. Um, I think, again, going back to our good friend Rousseau, uh, my frenemy Rousseau, <laughs> uh, <laughs> again, in, in the viewpoint that says uh, we don't want to be exerting uh, these other societal norms on people in a mm-hmm. way that would repress uh, repress their desires, their real selves, or oppress them. Uh, you can see the value of then like, okay, when I show up to any meeting or any gathering, my job is to be forceless. I don't want to press any agenda or right. opinion or philosophy my job is to kind of hang back, let others be them. I will be me. And Rousseau would say, well, what that allows for a little bit more is the emergence of the authentic self. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the funny bit in that is, well, that is actually pressing an agenda yeah. and a viewpoint and a philosophy, uh, just like the idea that says we must all get together and we all have to agree unless we don't agree that yeah. we don't. We don't agree with you, but we'll get there. Yes. Anyway, sorry. (laughs) So let's start with some positives of this view because this, it doesn't come out of thin air. It's a response to something and it, and it's a response to, to the culture that we live in right now as well. So what are some of the positives? Well, low conflict, low confrontation feels good. I am not a a person that enjoys confrontation. So it's like, I get this. (laughs) It feels safe. It feels comfortable. If you don't rock the boat, everything will be smooth sailing. We can all just get along. I totally understand the Like that feels good. Um, In this view, it allows for everyone's unique differences to be fully accepted and everyone struggles to be equally difficult, right? We're not drawing us us versus them lines in the sand. We're not creating groups that are considered other. It's just, just come as you are. Everything's okay. And it aligns or seemingly aligns, let's put it that way, with passages like Colossians 3.14. And this particular verse occurs at the end of a passage where Paul has just enumerated some things to stop doing. He uses the language of putting off and putting on. And he says, put off these things. And then he says, put on things like compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then he says, over all these virtues, 
put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So if you just lift that verse and say, well, that's what it says, you could see that that verse could be seen to kind of support this idea of just put on love, let's all work together in unity. Um, And as churches, we talk about being the kind of places where people can come and feel safe and be accepted and welcomed. And this kind of love on the surface seems to be the way to make that happen. Especially when you look at passages like 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. It's love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. You know, I mean, it goes on and it's like, yes, that's very peaceful. That's very harmonious. This agreeable, non-confrontational love seems to do all of these things really well. And so it's like, I can see where you would fall into feeling like just everything's okay. We don't want to make it uncomfortable. (laughs) But there are clearly some challenges, significant ones that come from this view of love where we're just all going to get along in the first is that it appears to seek the best of the other. I want everybody to be comfortable and safe and wonderful. And through creating this benevolent, unified community, like we think we're seeking the best, but it happens at the expense of seeking the actual betterment of the other. Because we don't want them to feel uncomfortable. We don't want conflict. We don't want confrontation or call anyone to change anything. So what we're doing here is worshiping harmony over the actual good of the other person. We're going to talk a little bit of this in the God section, but go ahead, Brandon. Well, I mean, I think the the point here is that the other person is actually not quite allowed in because yeah. uh, you can't bring your real self because you have to you have to come with a very two dimensional part mm. of yourself. Yeah. Um, because if you bring your real self, you're going to, you're going to find something to disagree with. You're going to run into conflict. You're going to, one person's sin is going to run into the other person's sin. But right. this idea of like, okay, for you to be part of this group, we all need to be exactly the same and totally agree and everything has to get along. Yeah. And I got to leave a lot of myself outside of that. Yeah, group. for sure. I mean, in the name of bringing your true self, just be who you are. We've actually said, be who is least conflicting within this group that, you know, right. whatever would create conflict, don't bring that part. Yeah, <laughs> which shows up to bring the most conforming person yeah. to the group. Which Ex- I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this view requires that divergent or contrary views be silenced or that those with divergent views who insist on clinging to them separate from the community that won't tolerate them. So in the name of tolerance, and we're all going to get along, if you get somebody... <laughs> who absolutely won't play by the rules, they have to separate out. If they've got a view that they won't let go of, then they need to go create their own community where all of their members agree, at least in principle, on whatever it was that they disagreed with the last group. Right. I mean, and this is where we get the cultural tribalism that we see today, where you have people that are all sort of triangulated on a particular view And they say, oh, yes, no, we accept everybody unless you think like this. And then you are not accepted in our view and you have to go somewhere else. That's right. (laughs) So it's it it's a self-defeating mentality. I I'm reminded of my coffee shop days Mm -hmm. um, and it was really funny because somebody showed up and uh, they were all kind of people kind of yuppie kind of culture, you know, like we're all going to get along. Same type of thing. And um she walked in and she's like, oh, all religions are true. We all, everyone gets along. It's all different ways yeah. to God. 
And then uh, somebody walked in who was Mormon mm-hmm. and they talked a little bit and walked away. And she's like, you Mormons. And you're and like, I was like wait, what part of what you just wait, uh, didn't she just, oh, but, oh, that disagrees because it's exclusive. So mm. that exclusive claim of the Mormon is not welcomed into the claim that all religions are true. Right. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Again. So now you're out of the group. Yeah. Yeah. It, self-defeating for sure. Sort of related to this is the idea that it's not considered loving to point out where someone is in the wrong or to call someone to change something about themselves. And you talked a little bit earlier about identity. And I think it plays here as well, because what has happened is there's this tendency both inside the church and out, nobody is immune to this, of conflating or confusing our beliefs and our practices with who we are. So that what I say or believe or think is actually who I am. So that if you disagree with me or with what I say or with what I do, then you actually don't like me. Like you've made a value judgment about me, my life, who I am, and you may actually hate me. You know, we use the term the haters. Mm-hmm. Haters, it's just kind of a way in culturally now of saying, well, they disagree with us. Oh, you're such a hater. Right. It's well, like. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> and even even some of the terminology, I think it was originally a more narrow view, but I think the term hate speech has grown to disagreement. Disagreement speech. With me. And so. Again, this goes back to this deep value of like, we don't want to upset the apple cart, everybody. You're not allowed to disagree with anybody else. We're all, we all got to get along. And so if I disagree with you, that can be termed hate speech. And wow, now we're talking, you know, words are violence. And so by me saying that to you, yeah, now I'm doing an act of violence. Now, I think in the original terminology of hate sure. speech of, wow, you are, you know, whether it's this racial slight Absolutely. or, um, you know, you're, you're hating on my group of people and those words hurt in that way, violence. But, uh, I wonder if in our expanding of this, mm-hmm. this concept, we are, ex- uh, we are limiting our ability to create communities where we can disagree. Yeah. We've completely lost the ability to have different opinions, but still value each other to sit across the table and love each other and value and and affirm the dignity of, but to say, I disagree with you like that. Yeah. <laughs> and what's sad about that is that we almost never really learn from the people that we all agree with. Mm, very good, yeah. And I mean, I think about even as you and I talked about this yesterday as we were kind of hashing through our notes, for those that are listening, Brandon and I don't always agree <laughs> when we sit down. Yep. There's a lot of times that we come to the table and it's like my notes look one way and his, and we work through it. There's mutual love and respect and friendship, but we're like, I, I don't, help me understand your point of view because yep. I'm not there. Totally. But culturally, we've forgotten how to do this and it goes from I disagree with you to I hate you and we can't even be in the same space. Yeah, and then the end goal of Kumbaya and we're all getting along ends up being extremely homogenous groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we don't know how to disagree. All we do know to do is agree and agree into more and more extreme viewpoints, Mm -hmm. which is where there's this tendency of tribalism moving into greater extremities. Um, But yeah, I mean, generationally, Mm -hmm. you and I sitting across the table, we learn so much from each other. Right. uh, And that's a practice that we really, that 
is built on a premise that says love is something more than just agreeing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That can't be all it is. Practically, how this works out is that a lot of times things that need to be addressed just aren't. We sweep things under the carpet and don't deal with them. Um, If you were in an office setting, maybe there's somebody that's just not pulling their weight. And instead of confronting that person or asking them to do their work, you just do it for them so it all gets done and nobody rocks the boat. Or maybe if you're in college, when the words group project come up, you just shudder. Okay, maybe I speak from experience. I just didn't have the courage to say to them, hey, you need to like step up mm-hmm. at the expense of my own peace and quiet because I would do all their work for them. And their growth. Right. That's the point. No, I yeah. was not concerned about their growth. I was concerned about my grades. <laughs> Let's just own it. <laughs> um, it also plays out in social media. Um, the anonymity allowed by social media allows us to be even more um, divisive. And, you know, it's just scary to disagree with people now because you don't, you don't want them to think that you hate them. So it, it begins to shut down even communication because you're like, I, I, I love them. I don't want them to feel that way. But I know that I'm afraid that what I'm going to say is going to actually be received as hate, which is not my intent at all. And then as followers of Jesus, this means that our efforts to speak the truth in love or even evangelism can be seen as intrusive, unloving, an affront, disrespectful. It literally throws a lens over sharing the greatest news we've ever heard that makes it foolishness and an offense. Paul saw it in his day. First uh, Corinthians one twenty three says, but we preach Christ, which is foolishness to the Gentiles. He's like, when it's being received that way, it's foolishness. Jesus saw it. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't be surprised. Now, in all fairness, sometimes it's on us. Sometimes sort of that churchianity approach, our version of speaking the truth in love or sharing the gospel, if it isn't bathed in prayer and humility, can come off sounding really judgmental and angry. So yeah. sometimes it's on the way it's being done. And sometimes, let's just be honest, sometimes we're far quicker to point out the speck in somebody else's eye than to admit and deal with the plank in our own. And so we end up coming off hypocritical. So sometimes it's just on how it's being done. But it makes sharing the gospel really difficult because as Rousseau pointed out, you, if you're enforcing, if you're pushing any view on me, then that's a bad thing because you're not allowing me to be me. So what does scripture have to say? Well, we know that Jesus is love incarnate. He is love and everything he does flows from love, but it doesn't always look or even feel loving the way we've been talking about it, right? So for example, Jesus corrected people. He didn't just let them be wrong. And sometimes it was harsh. Peter, God bless Peter, he gave Jesus lots of opportunities to demonstrate loving correction. Now, sometimes it's a little bit chiding. You know, there's a situation where in Matthew 15, where Peter asked Jesus to explain the parable. And Jesus is like, are you still so dull? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach? And he, he explains the parable that he was just telling, but it's kind of like, come on, man, don't you get it? <laughs> you know, so that's like more gentle. But then you go to the next chapter in Matthew 16, and Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Ouch. I mean, like that's, (laughs) that is. That's not love as agreeing. No. Yeah. That is love as disagreeing. Yeah. Quite strongly. Yep. And as you look through the stories about Jesus and when he encountered people 
Sometimes he didn't name a person's sin at all. In the story of the woman caught in adultery, he asks her, he says, where are your accusers? And then he says, go and sin no more. He doesn't enumerate, well, how'd you get in that situation? Where'd you meet him? What? I mean, he didn't get into it at all. He just, it was just, where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. But then you have the woman at the well in John 4, where he doesn't just kind of obliquely refer to her sin. He gets specific. You know, he says, you know, go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. He's like, actually... You're right when you say you don't have, you have no husband. The fact is you've had five and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, if somebody called out the deepest, darkest secrets in my closet in a public setting, I would be, I'd probably run. I'd be so like ashamed or just shocked. And yet watch her response she says in verse 19, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. So number one, she didn't run. Number two, she's like, she wasn't wigged out. She felt seen without feeling shamed. And she's drawn to him. Like she wants to continue. I would not want to continue the conversation with somebody that just called out my sin. But the way he did it, however, we don't have the benefit of tone of voice and body language, you know, which I would love to have been there to see that. But somehow... It came across as love because then a few verses later, she leaves her water jar, goes back to town, tells all the people, you got to come see this guy. Like she's not even afraid to expose her friends to what she just went through because it was done in such a way that she felt loved, which is crazy to me. (laughs) But it shows that love doesn't always look the way we expect. And I think even more shocking is the way Jesus interacted with the Pharisees. And I've always kind of been like, well, I mean, look at how they acted, of course. But as I was preparing for this episode, it was like Jesus kind of tapped me on the shoulder. It's like, I love them too. I died for them too. I mean, his interaction with them, he called them whitewashed tombs. He called them children of the devil. I mean, those are really strong things. But at the same time, if he loved them, I was like, okay, Lord, how did you love them? Well, he knew their hearts were hard and he saw the destructive path that they were on. They were committed to a path that was not leading them toward God. They believed they were worshiping God, but they were worshiping the law and their obedience to the law. And he, you know, sometimes a gentle nudge is all we need, but sometimes we need a little bit more, a little, a little more. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we need to be broken. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting when you think about the people who came to Jesus, the ones who were broken, Mm-hmm. were a step closer than the ones who didn't know they were, they were broken. broken. Exactly. But both of them needed to come to a savior Absolutely. to be saved. And so, you know, you look at the Pharisees in so many ways, if love is seeking the good of the other, what Jesus is doing here is he's confronting mm-hmm. their pride and their, um, their lack of vision. Mm-hmm. He's had a lot of parables about their lack of vision yeah. and their blindness. And sometimes we need that. I mean, I'm sure if you've been following Jesus for a while, you've experienced sometimes we need to be broken so that he can fix us. Absolutely. You know, this this philosophy of just no real desire, no real pain, no real challenge. And what we have in the person of Jesus is not that picture. At and all. so if that's the picture you have of Jesus, again, this is where we need to be refreshed by this different 
concept of love from yeah, scripture. Absolutely. And we're going to look at that in our third section. Yep. But for now, I just want to kind of draw to a conclusion, this section on love as agreeableness. And I think what we've seen is that this kind of love that maintain that maintains the status quo, it doesn't rock the boat, it seems appealing, and it can even appear to align with a cursory view of biblical love. Like if you just look quick and you read some of these verses and take them out of context, you're going to be like, this is, this is exactly what it says. But underneath the calm, seemingly connected community that it can create often lie buried problems, unspoken needs, and deep unresolved conflicts. In this view of love, there's no real mechanism to grow or to change or to sharpen each other the way that that the Bible talks about. Iron sharpens iron. You can't do that in this view of love. So you may be extra influenced by this view. We'll just do two of them. Number one, if everyone in your group thinks and acts the same way you do, you may have fallen into this view of love where people that disagree, you've, you've made them an other and they're not allowed to be close to you. Yeah. Can I just name real quick yes, the please. practice in social media of like, they're toxic, get them out of there. So mm-hmm. all your feed is just people who agree with you because yeah. agreeableness is what love is in this viewpoint. And so all, all over the place, I see Christians saying like, you're toxic. I'm not following you anymore. Yeah. And I get the idea with that is like, I don't want to see a bunch of stuff that frustrates me. Um, but man, I mean, if that's a Christian brother or sister, like even having them still on your feed, <laughs> like it will grow you and challenge you. Um, the idea of just, I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to just knock you out of my, my friend group or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's the other way that you might know if you're extra influenced by this view is that you tend to keep conversations surface level so as not to step in relational potholes and risk being seen as unloving. It's like you don't talk about anything serious. You don't do any self-disclosure. It's like, how's the weather? How's the sports? You know, you just keep it there so that you don't wander into any dangerous territory. And that's just such an unfortunate place to be. So why don't we talk about the third view of love? And, and I think it's going to be this is an exciting part. I love this. You love it, huh? I do. All right. So let's talk about God's love and the example that Jesus actually shows to us about love, uh, the way that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit show us what real love is. So we've got love as the fulfillment of my pleasure. And then we've got love as agreeableness. So let's hold that in contrast with the way that the Bible shows love. And we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to get a sense of this. Why is it important for us to understand this? Well, think about it this way. Love is the very nature of God. First John 4, 8 says, whoever is without love does not know God, for God is love, mm-hmm. which we could just spend yeah. a long time thinking about what exactly that means. But let's just say it this way, that if we have a different understanding about what love is, mm-hmm. we can miss God entirely right? or make him into a monster or we can perpetuate self-worship. Whoever or whatever you are worshiping is somehow tied to our view of love. Mm-hmm. So in the first version, we are worshiping ourselves. In the second version, we are worshiping harmony. In this third version, I think, I hope you will realize there's another, 
entirely different person mm. that loves us in a way that we can hardly understand, mm-hmm. but we can start living out. Now, because God is love, somehow, again, love is tied to the very identity of who God is. So let's look at, I think, a passage that most clearly shows God's identity as described by him in Exodus 3, 11 through 15, that I think clarifies for us some pretty cool things. So this is when Moses is talking to God when he's being commissioned mm-hmm. to go and set the people free, the famous burning bush. M- Moses says, said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. Let me say that again. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, I like the suppose I go. (laughs) Moses, you're talking to a burning bush that's talking back to you. Just say, okay, when I go, but no, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I tell them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. So we have two realities of the Mm -hmm. name here. Let's start with the first one, Yahweh. I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. Or I am who I am. There's so many different translations you can pull from this because of the Hebrew. The picture here is God's presence. God's very nature is this never-ending, true in every context, constant and never-ending reality. Mm -hmm. That is who God is. That is his character. You know, I think about it like the sun shining. Mm -hmm. Just every square inch for every second of the entire history of the earth, the sun has been pouring forth mm-hmm. energy. It's light. It's heat. Man, all plants and animals go back to this energy that the sun is sending and springing up everywhere. And some places, the the love, the energy, the, the heat from the sun lands on just dirt and it just mm-hmm. doesn't do anything. But the sun doesn't care. Mm-hmm. The sun just keeps sending this energy and this light constantly to the earth this is this picture i think of i am that i am Mm -hmm. no context no limitation i will be who i will be yeah and this is tied to this picture of agape love um this concept now it's not tied to it in this way because this was in hebrew in exodus and agape (laughs) is a greek word um but as people have studied this word agape that's used all throughout the new testament to describe god's love Um, Here's kind of the description of it. If eros is the arrow pointed towards me, Mm -hmm. right? Everything is about me, and I'm going to use you for my ends. Agape is an arrow entirely focused from me to the other. Mm -hmm. It has no need from the other, no limitation, no tiredness. It only seeks the good of the other. My Greek professor said uh, agape is taking care of an ugly baby. 
<laughs> he was awesome. Dr. Stavranides, he's like 85 years old, great dude. He knew like 12 languages. Anyway, what, what he says, ugly baby, is like you're taking care of a baby. Think about how much effort goes into taking care of a sure. child. You're feeding from yourself. You are changing their diaper. You are raising. You are cuddling. You are not getting any sleep. And what do they offer back? They scream in your face. They spit up on you. And then, you know, if they're ugly, they don't even make you feel nice to look at. You know, like that is agape love. Maybe wow. C.S. Lewis said it better. He said, in God, there's no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenty that desires to give. Mm. He goes on, he says, God who needs nothing loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. This is what God is doing. This is what agape love is. It's this constant, ever-flowing, others-oriented, I don't need anything from you. Yeah. Uh, Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love for us by the fact that the Messiah died for us while we were still sinners. Mm -hmm. We are giving nothing back to him. He loved us. John 3.16 uses the word agape, this one in Romans 5.8. All these are the word agape in it. I think if you summarize it best, it's kind of something like this. It's just that at its root, God loves us for no reason. Mm. It is his character. It yeah. just flows to us. And that is so beautiful and so refreshing. Now, one interesting concept of this word love is agape is love towards a direction. It's toward an end goal. The hope is not just to relieve pain or just create comfort, although that can be a part of it. Right. But it's to guide the other towards the ultimate good of that person we are loving. Mm -hmm. Do you see how much this is already like breaking our concepts yeah. of things? You know, the greatest compliment in the in the love as pleasure viewpoint is I love you. You satisfy my deepest desires. The greatest compliment in this viewpoint that you can give to somebody else is you love me so well. What That's the greatest thing you could say to somebody else. Wow. Right? Yeah. You love me. It just changes the whole process. Now, in the other view, the love is pleasure. Saying you love me feels like this really weird comment <laughs> about how cool you are. Right, right. <laughs> but in the scriptural view, see again how it's been all inverted. Let me read this from Martin Luther King. Agape is something of the understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. The redemptive goodwill, right? That's the seeking their good. See, yeah. It is a love that seeks nothing in return. It is an overflowing love. It's what theologians would call the love of God working in the lives of men. And when you rise to love on this level, you begin to love people, not because they are likable, but because God loves them. It's just so different. Like when you think about that, like the only place we actually see that is from God. Like it just feels like we don't even know how to begin to do that. You know? That's right. It doesn't, I mean, and that's that's the whole point. Then <laughs> mm -hmm. this is why it's a God love here. Exactly. That's something that we don't see anywhere in our human picture except where the fingerprint of God is showing up. Now, we have a part to play in it. Billy Graham says, agape love is selfless love. The love God wants us to have isn't just an emotion, mm -hmm. but a conscious act of the will. 
right? It's something we actually put effort into, a deliberate decision on our part to put others ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of love God has for us. And I think it's, it's important to remember that God loves us towards a goal. Like mm -hmm. it's not just, sometimes we think, well, the loving thing, if God loved me, he'd relieve my pain. Or if God loved me, he'd fix this problem. Or if God loved me, you know, that he would, um, he would make better whatever feels wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and know? we get so mad at God. Right. I was literally praying last night in frustration about <laughs> something being like, God, can you just relieve this pressure? But yeah, when you think about love as towards something, towards our greater right. good. Well, and, you know, we've heard, you know, God cares more about our character than our comfort. And we kind of, we get used to hearing that. And so then we almost dismiss it. But the reality is that he's working toward a good in our lives, a goal in our lives. And sometimes the loving thing isn't the temporarily comforting thing or the immediately comforting mm -hmm. thing. It's not the immediately relieving that pain, even though that's what we would say would demonstrate his love. Like if you loved me, this is what you do. Yeah. And his view is so much bigger and so much broader and so much focused on things that sometimes we're not even aware of. And I just, yeah. And <sighs> right. And that it's maybe, yes, it's your ultimate good, but your ultimate good is for the good of someone else. Oh, and so that's the hardest good. We're going to be, yeah. <laughs> like maybe it, you know, maybe you're in that season right now as you're listening, that season of discomfort and pain, and God has you there right now. He's not relieving it immediately, not that he's placed that pain on you, but he's not immediately relieving it right now because he wants to grow in you a compassion for others who are going through that so you can help them in right. that time. Like, who knows the Ugh. work God is doing for the ultimate good, but that is what love is, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it is so good. All right, let's move on to the second one. So that's, if that's agape, we see this all over the place with Jesus, of course, oh, yeah. as our example, right? <laughs> he, he was, he always left love in his wake. These are people that he knew. Of course, Jesus knew everyone, but yeah. people he <laughs> randomly ran into, what did he leave? He, he did leave healing for the blind man. Yeah. He, he left uh, correction for the woman at the well. Mm -hmm. But like you were saying, Linda, never did he turn around and make it about him. No, no. I mean, he'd show up. I mean, he'd feed a crowd of 5,000 men. Let's just be clear. Mm -hmm. So it's really like 10,000, 12,000 people and walk away from that and not ask for anything in return. He loved them by teaching them. He mm -hmm. loved them by providing for them clearly, miraculously. Mm -hmm. He saw their need. He saw, and he loved them by also, he loved the disciples by challenging them. You feed them, yeah. you know? Yep. And so like, he was doing all, and none of that did anything come back to him. Right, which is, you know, I think in our culture we would say like, well, I mean, if you're just constantly pouring out, you're going to end up empty. Right. And I would say it's it's an interesting way the kingdom works um, in God's kingdom economy that actually when you're pouring out, you end up filled if you are doing so from a place of attachment to the Father, that he is pouring that love into you and it can flow from you. I mean, because if we're supposed to follow his example, what's his example? Time with the Father that gives us what we need to love the people. Right. Because we can't love them of our own power. We don't have this. <laughs> That's right. So may we experience the Yahweh, the I am that I am, mm. that constantly flows into our lives so that we may do so into others. Absolutely. Now let's look at the second 
second bit of this passage, one that's often forgotten. When we think about God's name, we we immediately go to verse 14 of Exodus 3. I am who I am. Right. But then notice verse 15. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then at the end of those two verses, he says, this is my name forever the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. So God has two names he gives to Moses yeah. here. One of them is I am that I am. This decontextualized, ever-flowing, ever-present, not needing anything uh, name. And then my other name is the God of Abraham, that dude that I called randomly from yeah. the city of Ur. Super contextualized. The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Yeah. This is my name. So God shows us in this beautiful way that his identity is tied to those he's committed to. And that shows us Mm -hmm. the second form of love, which is hesed love, which is Hebrew. If you want to say it right, it's chesed, but, you know, uh, for the sake of the microphones, we're going to just keep it H. Um, Chesed love, there it is again, is built on relational attachment. It is built in a covenantal, committed contextualize limited relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we see this so beautifully in this picture. Now, in this way, Hesed can't be for the world. Right. The way that agape can be for the world, for people I've never even met. Hesed is about those, and it is practiced with those you know and are known by. For sure. Right? It's shown in God's commitment to Abraham and to Mm -hmm. Israel. Despite their failures, you think about when uh, God makes the covenant with Abraham, Mm -hmm. with Abram, and they cut the animal, and God says, I will walk through, you know, as the Mm -hmm. smoking pot. This Mm -hmm. picture of saying, I am committing to you. I'm limiting myself. Right. All of my I am that I am, I'm (laughs) limiting myself to you, Mm -hmm. to walking through this crazy journey we're about to go through to you and your people. That is Hesed. You know, just as you said that, I thought about Philippians 2, mm-hmm. where Jesus, he considered equality with God, not something to be grasped. He stepped out of that and limited himself all the way down to a human body. Yep. You know, for the sake of what? Mm-hmm. For the joy set before him, the cross. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, so he he definitely contextualized all the way into, right, know. Right, and you think about how this challenges uh, both of the viewpoints that we presented previously, that the idea of hesed here is this loving commitment. When we say love is patient, that word long-suffering, right? Yeah. Like uh, this viewpoint says, no, I will go through long-suffering for your good and for the sake of the commitment we have made to one another. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is where I think we desperately need to recapture this concept of Hesed, even for the sake of our marriages and then our society as a whole, the sense of a commitment to one another, a covenanting to one another where we trust, we are known and known by. If we can lean into that, I think if we can reclaim that, I think it will have massive impact not just on your life, but on the life of those that are in this Hesed community mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and for the sake of the larger community as we learn again and are refreshed again and rediscover the beauty of commitment and of covenanting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, James K. A. Smith in Desiring the Kingdom 
says this. He says, love comes alive when it's on the move. When it's idle, it often degenerates into shallow and superficial feeling, reverting us back to self-centric despair. But love at its best works like a human heart in a cohesive, harmonious flow, moving and pulsing with life, receiving and then giving, receiving and giving, and on and on. It is in the giving that we receive. Mm -hmm. This picture here uh, is of a Hesed community. Again, agape is not about receiving. It's simply about giving. Right. But this Hesed part that holds in contrast these two identities of God who is love. Uh, You have this, I don't need anything from you. But then in Hesed, you have this beautiful practice of giving and receiving. Right. Um, In the Greek, maybe a little bit closer to a phileo kind of love Mm -hmm. back and forth. So I think this is this is this picture uh, of Hesed again. The revolutionary aspect here, in my mind, is the incarnation that Jesus would show up, would become limited. This radical act of willing self-limitation. Uh, he shows up in a time, in a place, to a particular people, and then even within that, he limits himself to what the twelve and the three. Mm-hmm. That like. Man, if I was God incarnate, I would get so tired of people so quickly and be like, okay, who is the smartest person on earth right now that I can go spend some time with? But I'm going to spend three years, my entire time in ministry with some fishermen and a tax collector. And like, that's who I'm going to spend my time with. That is an incredible act. And so for for you, for me, as we think about re- rediscovering and recovering this concept of hesed, um, it will necessitate limitation mm-hmm. limitation of your time of your options of your mm-hmm. uh, money sometimes your i say it this way emotional comfort emotional well-being sometimes mm. it will come at the cost of those things to truly be in a hesed community and express love for another so let's bring this all home let's apply this a little bit we've been talking a lot of big philosophical concepts let's run a few scenarios okay, okay. How do we practice and offer this love of God, this agape and hesed reality kind of held intention? How do we willingly seek the good of others in committed relationships in a never-ending, ever-flowing way? How do we do this? Well, let's start with like three different examples. Running into a stranger at a grocery store. Maybe the second option is like the friend of me, like a relative or close friend you disagree with. And the third one is the person closest to you, spouse, kid, best friend. So running into a stranger at the grocery store, okay? Mm -hmm. So you're at the grocery store, you're in line at Trader Joe's or something. Yes. And uh, man, that pumpkin ice cream they've got right now is so good. Don't get me started on the pumpkin. Oh boy. Okay. So in the Eros love, what you do is if that person could solve some desires for you, you would maybe interact with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but if not, you would just leave them be, whatever. In the agreeableness love, if you run into that person at the grocery store, you've never met them before. Again, either you would just not want to talk to them to be afraid of like, I don't want to upset them. I don't want to mm-hmm. say, or again, maybe if you say hey to them, you're going to talk about, you know, uh, weather. But even the weather can get tense now or whatever. So I don't know. Comment on the color of their shirt. Maybe that'd be acceptable. The pumpkin spice items in their cart, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and that would be acceptable. Exactly. And that's, that's okay, I was loving because I just was did this nice thing. 
Now, God's love, you can't really practice hesed here because there's no covenant, there's no commitment there. Yeah. But you can practice agape. Mm -hmm. And so you run into that person. The question you could be asking yourself is, how can I seek their good in this this small moment right now? Mm-hmm. We see examples of Jesus all the time running into somebody. What does he do in those chance encounters? We can practice love in that moment by thinking, what is this person, in just this moment, you could pray, God, what does this person need right yeah. now? It's not about you at all. You're not going to get anything back from it. Maybe you will, cool, but your focus is entirely them. So, I mean, it could be something so simple. Sometimes it's, oh, I see you have one item and I have 17. Do you Would, would you like to go ahead? of? I mean, you know, it's yep. just being aware of them and their good. And I mean, that serves you not at all. Yep. But it's just this idea that that awareness and asking, God, what in this moment would you have for me to do for them? Right. How can I love them? Right. Absolutely. Okay. Different way of thinking. So the second one, frenemy. <laughs> A relative or close friend that you disagree with, um, some the holidays are coming up. You're going to be around some people a little bit more. Um, okay, eros love with a frenemy, what would happen? You almost just ignore them. Mm-hmm. I mean, because if it's already been established that you disagree on things, they're in a different space, there's probably nothing that you want from them. That's already predetermined because, I mean, you're using the word frenemy. This is somebody that's like, this is crazy Uncle Joe. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? This is somebody that I don't really want to deal with, but he's there. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to stay to myself Yeah. because there's nothing, he's not going to serve or benefit me in any way. So I'm just not going to engage with him at all. Yeah, or it's going to be just a very transactional uh, engagement of like, Hey, did you bring the deviled eggs I wanted you to bring? You yeah. know, hey, did you bring that whatever, that dessert that I wanted? And you use that dessert and then boom, thank you for the 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 benefit to me. Peace out. Yep. Um this friend of me in the agreeableness love, right? What we do in that situation is, okay, I'm walking on landmines here. Mm-hmm. And the best thing I can do is try to get along with this person however I can. So man, what I gotta do is just like what are the few topics I can talk about where we won't get into disagreement? And I will consider that a win mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that we were able to be around each other and we didn't blow up. Great. That's mm-hmm. the end goal of it. Now, God's love, you actually can practice Hesed here yeah. because this is somebody who you've known for a long time mm-hmm. and agape. So the question is, when you're thinking about them, what do they need? What is their ultimate good? What's, what is holding them up from their ultimate good? Mm. And that may mean diving into some of the junk with them and being like, hey, I don't know. You know that I love you and you know I'm going to see you again next month at this thing. Every time you bring up this thing, gosh, it just divides everybody. It feels real mm. anger-oriented. And I wonder if there's some fear underneath you that causes you to respond. There's no way in the eros or the agreeableness you'd ever step into this because it's uncomfortable. Right. And you want to step into it with prayer. Again, you're talking to Jesus before you're talking to this person and you're saying, give me wisdom to know. Because sometimes people, they get on their hobby horse and they just go, go, go because they don't feel heard. They don't feel valued. They don't, you know, they're constantly being dismissed because nobody wants to listen to them. And if somebody would just acknowledge and hear them, you don't have to agree with them, but you can 
hear them. Yeah, that too. That could be an act of love of like, man, what they really, their ultimate good is for them to feel heard. Yeah. I'm going to sit there and listen to that rant enough times. And then I'm going to ask a few questions. Yeah. That may. Tell me more. Like you don't have to agree. Just yeah. tell me more. Wow. That must've been really hurtful. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes just being heard or letting them feel like you actually care about who they are and that they're sitting there. Sometimes that turns it off. Yeah. And what does that build? That builds Hesed love Mm -hmm. that I'm saying, Hey, I'm attached to you and you're attached to me. We are family. Right. We're close friends. I don't, whatever the situation, um, man, that, and then what does that do? That increases trust Mm -hmm. where then the next time you go, dude, can I just tell you something? Right. (laughs) Like when you do this, can I just tell you what that does? Uh, that's, that's loving. That's seeking their good. Yeah. It is terribly uncomfortable and it's not anything that our culture likes to talk about doing, but that is what Jesus did. Uh, with so many people. Um, last one, those closest to you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're married, think about your spouse. If you've got kids, think about your kids. If you've got a significant other, maybe a close, close friend. Maybe it's your parent. Mm-hmm. Um, the eros love, the tendency is to continually extract greater pleasure and comfort from that person. Mm-hmm. It shows up in little ways like, Hey, babe, would you mind getting this thing for me mm-hmm. and not getting up? It it shows up in far bigger things that we don't have time to get into here. But for those closest to you, for, for that spouse, ask yourself, are you truly seeking their good? Mm. If the feelings of butterflies have decreased, guess what? That is not the fulfillment of what we were made for was mm-hmm. to get those butterflies but Jesus says, seek the kingdom and all these other things will be added unto you. Yeah. He's talking about food and shelter, but I think he also includes so much else. Yeah. Uh, seek the kingdom. Do the actual loving work of seeking their good and watch what happens with those feelings mm-hmm. that actually show up. So if you are saying like, I'm not getting the feelings, I need to go get those feelings elsewhere. Mm-mm. Can I just tell you right now, please don't go down that road. Yeah. You will wound them. You will do such harm, be refreshed by God's love for you. Mm. Now, and the second one, the agreeableness love in the marriage category or with kids, can we just say that all over the place, what we see is what was given to me as advice, happy wife, happy life. Don't disagree, (laughs) keep things nice. Just don't delve into that topic. And what we do is we sweep all this stuff under the rug. We see it in parenting all over the place. Mm -hmm. Just pretend like that kid is not doing that behavior. We're just going to pretend we're going to close our eyes and cover our ears because what we want in our home is just, can we get some peace and quiet around here? Right. And we do it to the detriment Mm -hmm. of these people we are meant to love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so please, like, what if we went to God again and we said, okay, with this person I love the most, let me show truly my love to them. I want you to think right now for that person that you are thinking about. Again, spouse, a kid, best friend, parent. What is their greatest good? Mm. And what is one action you can do today that is nothing to do with you? You get no benefit from it at all. And ask yourself, how can I love this person the way that God loves me? I bring no benefit to him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How can I do that and seek, seek their good? And then how can I deepen the Hesed community between us? How can I build yeah. 
and enrich the trust we have with each other, even if it sometimes is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that helpful? My mind is still going because I'm thinking, well, in order to do that, you know, what are we going to do? That's another episode. (laughs) Yes. But friends, it has been so good to have this conversation. Um, And hey, if you'd like the show notes for this episode, um, just go to saddleback.com slash found and join our mailing list and we will get those to you right away. Yeah, there's so many great resources of books and quotes and all the articles that we researched to dive into this. We want to get those to you. We can't put all those links in the YouTube and podcast stuff. There's not enough space. So we will email that to you. Just jump in and uh, and kind of join our community that way. Just know that Brandon and I love you. We pray for you and we will look forward to being with you next time. 